Welcome, everybody. In this episode, we venture in the contentious terrain of the European Union's role in dealing with migration flows and especially how such a role has evolved over time. Now, a groundbreaking piece of work on this topic, the Euromed Rights Report, Artificial Intelligence, the New Frontier of the EU's Border Externalization Strategy, has been just launched with a public webinar on 10th of July 2023. So today, we discuss with Antonella Napolitano, author of the report, who brings to the table her very in-depth research expertise on surveillance technologies and especially on such technologies in the context of migration. Now, this is a super important occasion to discover with Antonella the anatomy of the EU border externalization strategies, the implications also of technology within it, and very crucially, the many roles of the European Union as a funder of surveillance tools and artifacts. It is a big, big pleasure today to welcome Antonella Napolitano to our Sociotech podcast. Antonella is an independent advisor who works on a broad spectrum of technologies and with newsrooms and with multiple organizations working in the human rights protection space. It is a huge privilege to have Antonella with us, speaking uh, at teams that are so much at the heart of the intersection between tech and society that uh, our podcast aims uh, to discuss and delve in. So, big welcome to you, Antonella. Thank you for having me. And all I can say is, yeah, we really look forward to this conversation with you conversation that we would like to start just by yeah by asking you if you could introduce yourself and what brought you like what sort of factors brought you to study border externalization in the first place yes uh, well, as I said, thank you for having me. As you said, I'm an independent researcher. For the past few years, I've been working in the human rights space, both in the field of research, but also in the field of policy and advocacy in the migration and asylum space in Italy. And then most recently, I was for five years at Privacy International, which is a London-based international human rights organization that focuses on challenging surveillance practices from government and from companies. I was a senior policy officer there, and I also work with a network of international partners that the Privacy International has. And in that period of time, among other things, I specialize at the intersection of uh, technology threats in the space of migration and asylum. I came from a peculiar position because I had work on migration and asylum in Italy, uh, starting from 2015. So the so-called like migration crisis at the start of that period of time, but I had work already um, on technology and surveillance practices. So I was able to bring them together, working with my former colleagues at Privacy International. And this work on border securitization and externalization in the context of surveillance it's something that actually dates back to my time there. It's a work that we developed investigating the what we call the drivers of surveillance. So what is pushing surveillance in different spaces, in different ways, threatening people or population or particular groups. So yes, and then as an independent researcher, I got the chance working with Euromed Rights to 
focus on this again and bring some of the experience and the work that um, we at Developer Privacy International over the course of five years into this report, which hopefully will serve as a base for people to start learning about it and do their own research and challenge these practices. Yeah, it's um, thank you, Antonella. And I think this really brings us to the heart of our conversation. So very recently, last week, as we discussed today, you launched with Euromed White, what is going to be an extremely influential report in terms of border externalization. So the report, Artificial Intelligence, the New Frontier of the EU Borders Externalization Strategy which, uh, like I said, I think will really form the core of our conversation today. So to begin with, Antonella, what is border externalization exactly? And what sort of shapes does it take? Well, border externalization is a term that is used by migration scholars, policymakers, civil society, as well as the media, of course. It's the extension of border and migration controls beyond the so-called migrant receiving nation in the global north and into neighboring countries or sending states in the so-called global south. I don't like the terms, the, the term very much, but there is this idea that the countries like in Europe, and this is the context of the report, are receiving huge number of, of migrants. First of all, this is technically like it's not true. If you look at numbers, neighboring countries are the biggest recipients, so to say, of people moving. But what the EU and not just the EU are doing is implementing a wide range of practices to ensure that fewer people come to Europe. So this can take many shapes. So controls of borders, rescue operation measures addressing the drivers of migration. So we're speaking today, it's the 17th of July, just yesterday, the 16th of July, the European Union signed an agreement with Tunisia, again, in the context, this is a prime example of border externalization. It's still, I mean, as of today, I'm not able to tell you what it was uh, in there because the agreement wasn't made immediately public and there wasn't any press uh, reports and no possibility for journalists to ask questions, which is another element. Like I'm not mentioning just just by chance, because the lack of transparency in this practice is a key component of how border externalization has been working in the past few years. So collaboration can, with third countries, non-EU countries, can entail a variety of measures. So it can be accepting deported person, training police and border official, development of extensive biometric system, and donation of equipment, including helicopters, patrol ships, like in the case of, of Libya surveillance and monitoring equipment, as we as we'll say. Just to be clear, we're focusing in the report on the EU, but many of these projects are funded, also implemented by individual member states. So we're not focusing on that for the purpose of the report. And also, this is not a new practice. This is something that has been a key component of the strategy that the European Union has adopted in dealing with migration flows for at least three decades. We have seen a shift from 2015 in terms of funding and in terms of the surveillance component that uh, we'll discuss more uh, today. But yes, this is becoming the main instrument through which the European Union is seeking to stop people migrating and seeking asylum in Europe. Of course, I... Don't know much about the geopolitical situation in Europe and what happens with MENA and everything. 
But what I know for sure is like the discussions around AI and how they will elevate all the efforts that these member states are putting into uh, border externalization. So like, I mean, this report is like very timely in that sense where EU is going with the AI Act and everything. So just look forward to discussing more today on that as well. In fact, that sort of brings me, thanks, I uh, just for bringing uh, that up, because that brings me to, wow, I have many questions here as a keen reader of the report, but just building on what you just said, Antonella, so the central role of surveillance technology within the EU's border securitization strategies, a substantial funding of your report is in terms of outsourcing of surveillance technologies, which is really seen as central within strategies towards border externalization. I was wondering, can we say a bit to our listeners about what sort of shapes of main shapes the outsourcing of surveillance technology takes within the EU context? Yeah, within or outside in the border. Outside, sorry, yeah. Yeah, so the the institutional support through funding um, comes in several forms. So it's something I mentioned, it can come in forms of direct equipping, foreign surveillance, so different types of equipment to intelligence or security forces, but also training of law enforcement, financing of operation and procurement, facilitating experts of surveillance equipment by industry, but also promoting legislation that enables surveillance. And additionally, it's not explored so much in the report, but in the work of Privacy International in this space, we also look at the creation of biometric identity systems. I'm mentioning also, I know it's a it's in your uh, area of work as another type of initiative that can be used to share people's data with the EU authorities and assist in deportation. Mind you, a lot of this, it doesn't happen under the guise of curbing migration. It can happen with the definition of, you know, fighting smuggling and trafficking, or in the case of identity systems, modernizing, innovating systems. Like then the use is not really closely monitored, just to take a step in terms of challenging these practices. One of the things that we did at Privacy International was to challenge the lack of human rights impact assessment in the funding of some of these projects under one of the funding instruments of the European Union, the EU Emergency Trust Fund for Africa. So there was a Privacy International together with Access Now, the Border Violence Monitoring Network, Homo Digitalis, the International Federation for Human Rights and Sea Watch, submitted a complaint to the European Ombudsman, which is the watchdog of the EU institutions. And the Ombudsman started an investigation. And the result was that the commission, like they assessed that the commission guidelines should have required that assessment of potential human rights impact presented with corresponding mitigation measures, something that did not happen in the projects that were funded by the EU Trust Fund for Africa. The EU Trust Fund for Africa, just to be clear, is like 5 billion euros. So it's not a small amount of money and no project. So it's something that was launched in 2015. It was objective was to tackle irregular migration, to address root causes of migration. So a massive initiative. But yes, in the project that were implemented, there were no human rights impact assessment required, which again tells you something about how uh, the consideration that it's given to human rights in this context, even under the guise of tackling irregular migration and saving lives. Yeah, it's uh, very 
There are many thanks, Antonella, and here a brief note from me as someone who does research also in the space of biometrics and humanitarianism, the bridge between the idea of biometrics for development, so like combating inclusion and exclusion, and strategies that are extremely dubious in terms of data protection and of human rights protection is really strong. And the work of Privacy International is groundbreaking in this, uh, in this respect. So also thanks for bringing it up. There is an angle here. I leave it to Tejas because you are the AI person between us. There is a strong AI angle in the report. I know Tejas, you have a couple of questions on this. I briefly alluded to it, but basically we're just talking about the double standard and how migrants are treated. I think there there was a mention that the AI Act doesn't uh, specifically talk much about protecting these rights for migrants and so on. So, and there is a discriminatory aspect to it. So uh, would you like to talk a little bit more about that? Yes. Well, I mean, first of all, just to clarify, the AI Act does not address issues around border externalization, of course. But of course, like it's the first comprehensive attempt to address risk that can come from the artificial intelligence. So actually, it's a risk-based legislative effort. It's a rights-based, like for instance, the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation. Yes. So what we can see, I mean, it's of course a massive piece of legislation. It's uh, considered the first binding legislation on AI in the world. And the text has been voted by the European Parliament. And now it's entered into the trilogue phase where the Commission, the Parliament and the Council negotiate their position in that will form part of the final text. So it's still in the works. It's still not approved. Uh, but I mean, it will be expected later, towards the end of the year or sort of the, of the new one. For the concerns related to this conversation, there were several, like, because it talks about high risk systems and how to address this risk, there is a component that is um, related to migration. And that's where we saw double standards. What we saw in terms of, of civil society, there has been a massive mobilization of uh, civil society organization coming from the digital rights space, coming from the migration and asylum space, asking to ban harmful AI practices in the migration context context, including predictive analytics, to regulate high-risk systems, to ensure the AI Act applies to migration databases. So making AI a system of protection. Among the bans that were voted by the parliament in the final text, there are emotion recognition technologies, uh, which extends to EU borders, biometric categorization system that use personal characteristics to classify people and to inform inferences based on those characteristics, predictive policing system, which use preconceived notion about who is risky to make decisions about policing. So this is about everyone in Europe. But this text falls short on some, especially predictive policing ban, for example, does not fully capture the uses and implication that automated risk assessment and profiling system have in the context of borders. So there have been basically some bans, and I encourage you to, to read more from EDRI, European Digital Rights and Access Now, who have led a lot of the policy work and the advocacy work. But basically, not all of these bans equally apply to the migration context. So effectively, this creates a two-tiered AI regulation. Migrants are receiving lesser protection than the rest of society. 
at the moment, according to this text. And there isn't the expectation that it's going to improve as part of the of the trilogue in this sense. I mean, of course, we don't know yet, but that's the expectation of people who have been working on it. So it's particularly stark that it's not applied equally in the context of borders. It's, I have, um, thanks Antonella. In fact, on this, uh, I have a question that comes a bit more from my position as someone that I think I can share with listeners is extremely confused about AI, about what AI means in different contexts and to different people. So I guess building on the technologies you just mentioned as potentially, when not actually harmful in the migration context. So what are the main forms that AI takes within the migration control context? You mentioned emotion recognition, you mentioned predictive policing. How does AI look like in the migration control space? Well, there are several ways. I also want to sort of take a step, not back, but aside to say that now we we talk a lot about AI, but there are other forms of advanced technologies that are not AI, but they have already been used and implemented and are already very dangerous. So we're talking about AI in this context, but it has to come sort of together with other forms of technologies that are implementing surveillance practices and are uh, harming people. Because there is a temptation because now everyone talks about AI. And so if it's not AI, then it's less dangerous. Like, no, we see like people who work in this space, it, it's very dangerous. So yeah, the types of things you mentioned, there are anything that is forming predictive assessment. There is, uh, we, I mentioned in the report, this project under Horizon 2020 called EU Migrate Tool that will provide direction. And I'm quoting here, will provide predictions of the number of migrants coming to a specific European country, analysis on drivers, patterns, choices of migration, as well as public sentiment towards migration, and the identification of risk of tensions between migrants and EU citizens. So it's a tool that will bring together data sources from TV news, web news, social media, but also different types of data sets. This form of predicting systems are extremely dangerous, as well as other tools that are creating with automated uh, systems. Like there are forms of lie detectors, as you said, like motion recognition, uh, biometrics, using different forms. If in terms of automated technology used in migration and asylum governance, I also want to mention there is an excellent report that has been authored by an academic from University of Oxford called Daria Oskul and uh, takes stock of the uses of technologies in migration. So looks at cases in different European countries, including forecasting, as I said, automatic processing of visas and travel authorization, several like risk analysis, behavior and emotion recognition at borders, but also after arrival, because we're thinking border externalization, so before the border, we're talking about borders, but there are other forms of automated processing, AI, not AI, uh, that also affect people after they've come in the process of their asylum application, in the process of the way like the reception works. There are forms of advanced technology used in detention. So electronic monitoring, as I mentioned, I guess, speech recognition for application and many other things, mobile phone extraction that analyze data. As I said, I'm mentioning examples that are AI and not AI, just to give you not only the sense of the breadth of technology that you use, but also that you really don't need AI to be uh, very... It's, it's about centralization of data, right? At the end of the day, like... Yeah, data. intensive systems and advanced technologies can be used and combined in many, many ways. 
Yeah. Uh, I think the worst thing in terms of, so of the critical, not only they're very opaque, it's very difficult to get information about how they work. You will hear a lot of the hype of innovation or security and all that, but you won't hear as much whether these pilot projects, if their pilot projects are actually working, whether then they implemented maybe quietly or instead dismantled because they didn't really work, but you will never hear that side of things, which is why it's really important that there is this work done by researchers, journalists, civil society, and that is shared and brought together because it's really the core, like understanding actually, it's the first step to decide how to challenge these practices. Yeah, and the core part being that because this is happening outside of EU borders, they are not like even subjected to GDPR or any of these. So at the end of the day, it's kind of, yeah, problematic, at least in my mind. Yes, that's another side of the, the two-tiered system, the people who have more rights than others. Some of the examples that I mentioned, for instance, in terms of training. So the report focuses only on the MENA region, the Middle East and Northern Africa region, and on five countries specifically. So there are examples provided on Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco, Libya, and Egypt. And of course, I mean, it, it's just a snapshot because of, you know, the, the report like couldn't, couldn't be like longer than that. But uh, first of all, there is a lot more, but also this applies to a lot of other non-EU countries, other countries in Africa, as well as countries in the Balkans. So depending on what is the region, the area, the thing you're looking at, there is a lot more. And I know there are upcoming reports and journalist investigation that will come out in, in the coming months and that look specifically maybe at a country or a few specific practices. So it's a very wide, wide space. And for us to understand, if I may ask, like, are these technologies not just for border control, but are they also used by these authoritarian or regional governments for policing and such as well? Yes, I mean, they can, in the sense that once the equipment is provided or the training is provided, the EU does not monitor or claim they don't know what it's used for. It's not their responsibility anymore. So this is technology that is and can be used in the national context. So not only to curb migration, but to repress dissent, to spy on activists, on journalists, or human rights defenders, to repress protests. So... The paradox in all this is that this is creating further instabilities. This is providing tools to create further instabilities in these countries. And this will create more reason for people to move. So, yeah, the paradox is that what is created to curb migration is actually providing more fuel to the situation that actually push people to move. So, yeah. And some of these technologies and some of these forensics and investigation practices, they could not be used in the same way in Europe. Again, we're providing tools and practices that like the law enforcement couldn't use in, in EU countries. EU Agency for Law Enforcement Training, it's called CEPOL, is providing training to law enforcement in some of these countries. So, yeah, this is another example of the a two-tier system, a different standard for, for countries. In fact, uh, yeah, thanks, uh, Antonella. I do have a note on uh, on this. I mean, as we just uh, said, yeah, the EU doesn't necessarily monitor, but it does finance uh, these the systems. I think it's one of the final sections in your report that squarely focuses on the EU as a surveillance fund. So I guess my question is, in a nutshell, what do we know? 
in terms of EU funding to surveillance and how does it look like? Yeah, I mean, as I said, like, it's a very broad base and we focus only on some of the funding instruments. So for instance, as I mentioned earlier, the commission also funds individual member states to implement some of these projects. So the report doesn't focus on that, but I recommend, for instance, in the context of Italy, there is a great project called The Big Wall that is by IRPI Media and ActionAid Italy that looks specifically at the role of Italy. There are organizations in Spain, SEAR in Spain, but also uh, Por Causa. And they're looking, Por Causa is looking specifically also at the private aspect of the border externalization for migration. So this is something we don't touch upon in the report, but there is also a huge private component of the security and the tech industry that is involved in all this. Um, so there is this, there is, of course, EU-funded projects, as I mentioned. There is Frontex, the EU border agency, which has seen its budget skyrocketing in the past few years and is increasingly using surveillance uh, technologies and advanced tech, even though it doesn't seem to use it as much in the purpose of their work as we've seen shipwrecks in the waters in the Mediterranean, in the central Mediterranean or in the Aegean. But yeah, for the purpose of the report, we look specifically at two funding instruments. One is the EU Trust Fund for Africa, which I mentioned earlier. And one is actually, it's a new, it's a new funding instrument called NDICI in the acronym. And it's coming for the Neighborhood Development and International Cooperation Instrument. It's a new funding instrument that aims to support countries in need to overcome developmental challenges and will contribute to achieving the international commitment and objectives, in particular in relation to the 2030 Agenda and the Sustainable Development Goals and the Paris Agreement. So you don't see any securitization in this. If you look at the EU Trust Fund for Africa, there is a lot of, you know, tackling smuggling and tackling root causes of migration. In the context of the Trust Fund for Africa, I look specifically at some of the projects that are funded and they use exactly the language that I mentioned. The NDICI, in the report, there aren't specific data in relation to it because it was launched very recently. So there isn't as much material but I look at some of the funding instruments uh, from the previous budget period. So this funding instrument brings together a lot of development, a neighborhood instrument, as well as the European Defense Fund. So to give you an idea, the EU Trust Fund for Africa is 5 billion euros. It's sort of winding down in the sense that they're not making new commitments, but the project will be implemented until 2025. The NDICI will be used from 2021 to 2027, so the, the whole budget period for the EU. The total allocation at the moment is 79.5 billion euros. So to give you the idea of the breadth, it uh, focuses globally because the neighborhood of the EU is global. So there are also other countries that are affected, but the bulk of it, it will be used. We'll see how it's going to be used. But it's used, again, in the context of development goals, in the context of environmental goals. It's very wide and it will be definitely a challenge to investigate what kind of projects are there. But judging from what has been funding under the funding instrument that now form part of this new one, we're seeing a lot of these security-oriented projects.
it, I think it really goes to the heart of the problem, Antonella. And Tedros, I remember on this, you did have a question on the rationalization of the use of money. So maybe you want to go ahead with that one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, before a question, like I think the technology is not going anywhere. And of course, the centralized databases and AI is only going to get more involved in our lives. But looking at what we discussed so far today, what we see is these technologies and these policies are doing exactly what the EU states want to keep the asylum seekers, to keep the migrants away, uh, or to keep them from entering uh, EU. So, so in all of this, where do we focus our attention as researchers, as as NGOs, as public and as EU residents, like where do we put our efforts into making sure that some of these don't go uh, as planned and yeah, there are some regulations on these? Well, that's a huge question, an extremely important one. I mean, first of all, as researchers, like the first thing I can think of is that there is a role and a key role um, in challenging assumptions and in challenging just the, the public declaration that have been made. Like literally just this weekend, the EU funded an agreement with Tunisia that it's informed by human rights. But in the, in the same breath, like this is like in the past few weeks, Tunisia has been expelling like migrants outside their borders, literally pushing sub-Saharan people. And this is something that we've seen in many other contexts. For years, Italy has been implementing and the EU has been implementing uh, projects in Libya, making agreements, as I said, like national level in Italy and EU level in terms of funding, providing, for instance, patrol ships that most recently have been used to, to fire on rescue operation. These are the same boats. So there is, um, let's say it's impervious to evidence that this works. Like they keep saying this is working, but we know it doesn't work. We know it further human rights abuses. We know that securitizing borders only means that people are going to look and find less secure ways, more dangerous ways, more deadly ways to leave their countries for different reasons. Like at land and sea, we're seeing this. We're seeing shipwrecks because people are desperate. They're coming from desperate situations. So first of all, there is, I think, for researchers of different kinds, as a journalist, academics, challenging this assumption that are provided as facts, providing evidence, but also understanding critically the system, which is also why I always urge people to understand how much of this is actually real. Even in terms of surveillance, there is a lot of hype of this technology that are going to solve these problems. There are two levels there. One is that often they don't work, but the issue is not, of course, that they should work better. Uh, but this is in general for surveillance. What kind of society do you want? But I think understanding it actually works or it is what we call snake oil, which is like something that is just fake. I think it it provides tools for different people. Like in this space, there are people challenging with campaigning, with strategic litigation, with going to regulators. So there are different ways and strategy. And so I think a key issue here is also working together, making sure that this is an ecosystem where knowledge is shared and people can build upon each other's work. Of course, not everyone will do the same thing and that's fine. And people will have different approaches. 
I think as researchers and as EU citizens or non-EU citizens, understanding the root and understanding in a critical sense, the context is fundamental to challenge that. Even if researchers won't challenge that in terms of, you know, advocacy or litigation, like the, but making sure that this knowledge is, is shared. And I mean, in my experience, researchers are coming from very different spaces. So I know there are researchers that come from the sort of legal context, they come from sociology, they come from migration, they come from technology. And that's the same in civil society. So one of the things that I've tried to develop in the work that I've done in the past few years with with colleagues and with other people in this space is making sure that this space would come together. Because what I could see early on is that a lot of so like digital rights organization or people working in the tech and challenging surveillance, they didn't have enough knowledge of lived experience of people on the move, migrants, asylum seekers, refugees. While on the other hand, people directly working with asylum seekers or the migrants themselves, they didn't have necessarily understanding of what the tech could do or didn't have enough tools to challenge it. So I think it's really important that this spaces are sort of coming together as it's happening. I think it was very important that there was in the whole civil society response to the AI Act, there was a growing coalition that looked specifically at the threats and arms to people on the move. And I hope there will be more of that. Because again, we're focusing on the tech, but there are other pieces of legislation. There are other arenas in the migration and asylum space where people working on tech are not really. And so I hope this will happen more that people with like this sort of cross pollination of knowledge and expertise and um, tactics. It's in fact, I think that's a crucial uh, point in a way it brings us uh, sort of what's what I like calling future oriented uh, questions on this, uh, on this concerning developments. And uh, I know Antonella from our previous interactions that collaboration is a very key team in your work. And I think, uh, as we discussed also during the presentation of your report, uh, collaboration is key in facing the detrimental outcomes that surveillance uh, presents. So perhaps as a quasi-final question today, I'm really interested in understanding what sort of shapes collaboration takes in the activist space, the activist as an extended term space in reaction to surveillance technologies. If I may add to that, yeah. So I, I would like to end the episode with with hope. So I would like to also hear some work that is, yeah, that we, we should look forward to and uh, yeah, some stories that could point us towards hopeful outcomes. Well, as I said, it's a very challenging space. It's very difficult. I think uh, what we're seeing is there is the growth of a movement. We're seeing people like from the very basic, you know, going in the streets. There have been a lot of protests after the recent shipwrecks, after the role of, of EU institutions. People working in the space of migration and not only, also this intersection, It they are... Uh, I mean, today, it's, this is something in terms of, you know, perception about how discourse is changing. A few years ago, nobody really knew about Frontex, about the EU Coast Border Agency. Today, it's, uh, it's becoming an adversary for a lot of people working in the migration asylum space and challenging these practices to the point that the pressure 
on the agency because of their practices, because of the way they were complicit in some of this, led to the resignation of the former head of Frontex. This was thanks to public interest journalist investigation, to activists, to researchers' work, to like legal scholars. There is a very wide-ranging community. This by no means means that the problem is solved, of course, but the fact that it put so much pressure that has happened, I think is an example of the results that can be achieved, even in the face of a growing indifference, to, as, as I said, the Tunisian example, the EU-Tunisia agreement is a prime example that where there are words and lack of transparency from EU institutions, while on the other hand, it's been widely reported that like Tunisia on top of very complicated situation of curb of civil liberties and human rights is actually also pushing migrants like outside the country. So what I'm what I'm seeing and what I hope to see more is yes the growth of movement that come together come together in the streets come together in campaigning in asking for a change unfortunately I'm not seeing at the moment a lot of change in terms of in, when it comes to elections this is something that we're increasingly seeing this sort of shift to the right and to the far right uh, I think there is a lot more work to be done there I think there is a lot of understanding in relation to society that needs to be done. But yeah, as I was saying earlier, in terms of of challenges, there are different ways and words to challenge. So I think there are already standards that are just not fulfilled. So there is a first level and the first layer, uh, but there is also the need of building a discourse that is much wider and brings together, well, not only the technical issues, but also a different discourse on on the humanity of people, because what we're seeing is that the othering of people like migrants, refugees, they're not considered people in a lot of discourse. So I think there is a lot to be changed there. And it's not like very technologically sophisticated, but I think there is a lot to be done there as well. So, and Euromed rights, for instance, when we discuss like this report and another joint report that was published at the same time by State Watch, which I also want to mention, addressing specifically the EU's techno border. So fo- focusing specifically on the money that goes into building borders physically and digitally in the EU. So another recommended read and conversation to be had. This is the start for Euromed rights in addressing comprehensively these issues. While they have worked on border externalization for many, many years, their members are around the Mediterranean. And so the hope is also that this kind of work and other works that is done is not only brought by people in the EU, but creates a movement that actually has like we're, we're organization in um on the other side of, from like north african countries uh middle east countries play a role that is not just um uh they're not like just the object uh, of of a report they're not just something separate that we are trying to help their voice is not only part but it's leading this kind of work this kind of movement as it's happening already in movement in Europe, but it feels like it feels like a new challenge. So it's um, 
it's really hard to say, oh, we should do this, we should do that. I think there is a lot to do and a lot to address and a lot of work to bridge these groups and these people and this expertise and knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. And just anyways, we will be linking both the reports, but could you also allude to some other organizations that we could look out for who are working in the space, be it as researchers or someone who is interested to learn more, like where should they look for? Yes. So, I mean, as I said, definitely, uh, yes, Euromed Rights and State Watch and Privacy International, as well as Access Now and EDRI in the context of the EU. There are um, new projects from Algorithm Watch. This is in the space of Europe, but also moving more to migration. There is PICUM, another member organization that works with undocumented migrants that also has been key in this work. I would recommend, actually, the, as I also mentioned, the Border Violence Monitoring Network, Homo Digitalis in Greece. I would also suggest, if you're interested in this work, to go to the website protectnotsurveil.eu. It's a coalition of some of this organization, as well as individual researchers that has been challenging specifically the provision of the AI Act in the context of migration. So if you're in this space and want to be involved in this space, there will be more initiative and resources for there to get started. But yeah, depending on your expertise and your field of work, there is a growing field of researchers in this space. And again, depending on where you're approaching, like I uh, had the chance to be part of a few meetings of uh, projects called Security Flows led by Professor Claudia Aradao. And that's, for instance, from the context of, you know, security, but there are, I mentioned Daria Oxul and the report, and there is a project on algorithmic fairness called AFAR that it's led by the Earthy School in Berlin. But yes, there are many, many others and maybe I can put together a list and provide it to you just they're not on, on on my mind as we're speaking but there is a really a wide wide set of people working on this also in terms of narratives there is a lot more work in, done in terms of narratives around migration there is a an intersect growing intersection in the context of climate and what it means and how instead some climate issues have been instrumentalized already by the far right to further fuel fears around migration. And we just briefly touched upon it. There is also a lot of work to be done in terms of the private sector component. So as I mentioned, Per Causa work has work on that. Privacy International as well has done work. There are um yeah journalists and coalition of civil society organizations doing this work. There is a growing movement of people challenging at the level of investors in these companies. This would open up another huge space because a lot of these tech companies are using aid as well as even the war in Ukraine to rebrand and get reputational benefits. So some of these companies that have been used by some, like for instance, companies like Palantir, who have worked with the Trump administration to arrest undocumented migrants, are today rebranding as aid partnership or technology partners in the humanitarian space. For instance, Palantir is a partnership with the World Food Program, but also in the war in Ukraine. So I think... There are a lot of spaces and a lot of broader conversation to be had about the, the private sector as well. So there is a lot of work to do. And I'm sure that this will give a, a lot of ideas to, to, to researchers and people in this space. Absolutely. 
Yeah, I think that's crucial. And it's, I think it's a very good mapping to also very difficult mapping to make within this space. So thank you for that, Antonella. I think this will be super precious to our listeners in and beyond the field of research. Like within, we seek to, to speak, yes, to fellow researchers, but also to colleagues within the civil society space, within the activism space, to whom I think this mapping will be extremely important. I don't have any further questions. I don't know whether this hopeful note can be a note to conclude, yeah, on a positive comment potentially in this episode. I don't know, Tedros, if you had any more remarks. No, no, I didn't have any more remarks, but I just wanted to say that uh, we were listening to the presentation last week and we knew like this was going to be our first episode right away. So thank you so much for joining us today and uh, having this conversation with us. Thank uh, you. And, uh, thank you for having me. And yeah, it's been a great, great conversation. And uh, yeah, I hope there will be more. If you liked the episode, please consider sharing it. And don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss another episode.